0: chapter 6 of the brand of silence this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by roger meline the brand of silence by harrington strong chapter 6 murk and murder instinct intuition or some similar faculty caused prale to turn off the avenue eastward toward the river he was not angry now his mind was in action. He had convinced himself that there was something behind all this and he was eager for the solution. Those mysterious warnings had begun on board ship, he remembered. The piece of paper Kate Gilbert had dropped, and which he had picked up, had writings similar to the messages he had received. He would have to engage Jim Farland, he told himself, and learn a few things concerning Miss Kate Gilbert. Had the journey because of ill-health been a subterfuge? Had Kate Gilbert gone to Honduras to watch him? If she had, what was the reason for it? It's enough to make a man a maniac, Prale mused. And that Shepley man, he was all right when we parted on the ship. Somebody said something to him about me after he landed. He treated me as if I had been a skunk. Then he thought of George Lerton, his cousin. He couldn't quite make up his mind about Lerton. The man seemed frenzied in his eagerness to get Prale to leave New York, and Prale knew that it was not because of an overwhelming love George Lerton had for him, not anxiety lest ill fortune should come to Sidney Prale. He would have to think it out, he told himself. At least he knew that he had foes working against him, and could be on guard continually. Down in Honduras he had won a reputation as a fighter, and a fight was a fight in any clime, he knew. There might be a difference in the rules here and there, but the same qualities decided the winner. He continued walking down the street toward the river. In Honduras he had become accustomed to walking up and down the beach and looking at the water whenever he wanted to think and solve some problem, and it probably was habit that sent him to the waterfront now. He tossed away the butt of his cigar and did not light another at the moment. For a time he stood looking out at the black water, at the craft plying back and forth, their lights flashing he stepped upon a little dock and started walking its length. After a time, he came near the end of it without having encountered a watchman and sat down on a box in a dark secluded corner. There, his back braced against the building and the building shielding him from the cold wind that came up from the distant sea, Sidney Prale sat and tried to think it out. One thing made a comfortable thought. He had money with which to fight. Either he was the victim of some injustice, or a grave mistake was being made. He wished that he had forced George Lerton to tell him more, and he decided that he would do so if they met again. He might even hunt him out and force him to speak. Sidney Prale thought nothing of handling a man like Lerton. He heard steps on the dock and remained silent in the darkness thinking that possibly some watchman was making the rounds. If he was discovered, he would say that he had been looking at the river, give the watchman his card and a tip, and leave. The steps came nearer, and Prale could make out the form of a man slipping along the dock's edge in a furtive manner. There was not light enough for Prale to see his features. He was walking bent over, a short, heavy-set man who did not wear an overcoat. Prale watched as the man passed within six feet of him and went to the edge of the dock. There he stood, outlined against the sky, looking down at the water. Prale imagined that he heard something like a sob and gave closer attention. Then he saw the man take off his coat and drop it behind him, remove his cap and place it on the coat and looked down at the water again. And then Sidney Prale sprang straight forward and grasped the body of the other as it was in mid-air. No, you don't, Prale exclaimed. He found immediately that he had a fight on his hands. The other whirled and began kicking and striking. Sidney Prale hurled him backward, rushed, caught him up again in a better hold, threw him back against the building and held him there, breathless and panting. "'Another smash out of you, and I'll drop you into the river myself,' Prale said. "'Suppose you take time to get your breath now?' I, "'I thought you was a cop.' "'Afraid of the cops?' "'It's against the law to to try to commit suicide.' "'So I understand,' said Prale. "'Well, I am not a cop.' "'Trying to drown yourself, were you? Why?' "'Why not?' the other asked. "'I'm done with living.' "'Not just yet, but you would have been if I hadn't been sitting here.' "'I've knocked all over the world and made a few mistakes,' said the derelict. "'Oh, nothing that would get me in trouble with the cops. "'But I just found out that I'm cluttering up the earth and don't amount to anything.' I'm sick of half-starvin' to death, and workin' like a dog when I get the chance, just to get enough to keep a few old clothes hung on me. Disgusted generally with your lot? Prale asked. Yes, sir. Friends or relatives? Not any. What's your name? Prale asked. You mean my real name? I don't remember. IT'S BEEN SO LONG SINCE I'VE USED IT, AND I'VE USED SO MANY OTHERS SINCE THAT I DON'T KNOW. WHAT'S THE DIFFERENCE?" "'I'LL CALL YOU MURK,' SAID Prale. THAT EXPRESSES THE DARK RIVER, THE DEED YOU ARE ABOUT TO DO, AND THE EVIDENT STATE OF YOUR FEELINGS. IT'S AS GOOD AS ANY, I SUPPOSE. WHAT'S YOUR PARTICULAR GRIEVANCE AGAINST THE WORLD IN GENERAL?' it ain't anything in particular said murk it's just general i see a drifter are you i reckon i am sore at existence huh well what's the use of livin murk demanded there ain't a man woman or child in the world that gives a whoop what becomes of me i'm just in the way to be kicked around Maybe you haven't found your proper place in the scheme of things. I've sure done some travelin' lookin' for it, boss, but maybe I ain't found it, as you say. I sure ain't found any place that looks like it needed me bad. Hard to make a living? Oh, I get along. But what's the use? Murk wanted to know. I ain't got anybody. I get lonesome lots of times." If I had money, it might be different. "'I'm not so sure about that,' said Prale, smiling a bit. "'I've got a million dollars, and, as far as I know right this minute, I have just one friend in New York.' "'If I had a million dollars, I wouldn't care whether I had a friend or not,' Murk said. "'You can be just as lonesome with a million dollars as you can without a cent,' Prale told him, I was sitting down here because I was lonesome, and because there are some enemies working at me, and I don't know who they are or why they want to trouble me. "'Well, let's jump in the drink together,' Merck said. "'Why not fight it out?' asked Sidney Prale. "'Mister, I've been fighting for years, and it don't get me anything.' It just tires me out, that's all. The next world can't be any worse than this. Are you a fighter or a quitter? Nobody ever called me a quitter. But you were trying to be a few minutes ago. You were going to quit like a yellow dog, Prale told him. You were going to throw up the sponge and give the devil a laugh. That's between me and the devil. Nobody else would care. If you had a friend, an influential friend, and didn't have to keep up a continual fight to hold body and soul together, could you manage to face the world a little longer? I reckon I could. How old are you? Thirty-five, said Murk. Old enough to have some sense. I am three years older. I am almost as lonesome as you are. Why not join forces, Murk? Sir? If I showed you a corner where you would fit in, would you be loyal? Would you stand by me, help me fight if it was necessary, and all that? You just try me, that's all. Very well, Murk. I'm going to trust you. I told you the truth when I said I had a million dollars. I have but one friend I can depend on, and I have enemies." I like to fight, Murk, but I like to have a good pal at my back when I do. That's me, too, sir, but I ain't never had the pal. You've got one now, Murk. You'd be dead now, but for me, so you must be my man, understand? I don't quite get you. You're under my orders from now on, Murk. "'We'll have a nice row standing back to back, perhaps. "'I'll take you on as a sort of valet and bodyguard. "'You'll have good clothes and a home and plenty to eat "'and a bit of money to spend. "'I'll expect you to be loyal. "'If I find that you are not, well, Murk, "'I got back yesterday from Central America. "'I got my million down there by fighting for it, and there were times when I had to handle men roughly. I can read men, Murk. Can you imagine what I'd do to a man who double-crossed me?" "'I get you now. You needn't be afraid I'll double-cross you. I don't think this is real.' "'It's real, Murk, if we strike a bargain. Do we?' "'I've got everything to win and nothing to lose.' "'So we do,' Murk said. "'Fair enough. Now we'll get off this dock. "'Pick up your cap and coat.' Murk picked them up and put them on, "'and then he followed at Prale's heels "'until they were on the street and beneath the nearest light. "'There they stopped and looked each other over. Murk was short, but he was built for strength.' Prale could tell at a glance that the man, even poorly nourished as he was, had muscles that could be depended on. Prale liked the look around Murk's eyes, too. Murk was a dog-man, the sort that proves faithful to the end if treated right. "'Well, how do you like me?' Prale asked. "'You look good to me, sir.' "'My name is Sidney Prale.' Yes, Mr. Prale. You understand our little deal thoroughly? Yes, sir. Come along then. Here's a cigar. Light up. Murk lighted the cigar and Prale lighted another and they went rapidly up the street to Fifth Avenue. Prale signaled a passing taxicab and they got in. When the cab stopped, it was in a district where some cheap clothing stores remain open until almost midnight. Half an hour later they emerged again. Murk was dressed in a suit which was somber in tone and which was not at all a bad fit. He was dressed in new clothing from the skin out. Prale took him to a barber shop and waited until the barber gave Merck a haircut and a shave. "'Gosh!' Murk said when he looked at himself in the glass. This can't be me. It is, however, Prale assured him. Now we'll go home, Murk, and get settled. Where is home? Prale named the hotel. I'd get thrown out on my bean if I ever stuck my nose in the kitchen door, Murk said. You're not going into the kitchen, Merck. You're going to be registered as my valet and bodyguard, and you're going up in the elevator with me. Kindly remember, Murk, that you are the personal servant of Mr. Sidney Prale. Yes, sir. And your boss has a million dollars, and nobody knows how many secret enemies. Those things give you a standing, Murk. When we are alone, of course, you'll be a sort of pal. I never had a valet before, and I couldn't stand a regular one. Instead of being a valet, when we are alone, I want you to be a regular fellow." I get you, Mr. Prale. Off we go, then. They arrived at the hotel, and Prale registered Murk as his valet and took him up to the suite. "'You bunk in there, Murk,' Prale said, pointing to another room. "'Take a bath and go to bed and get some rest. "'If you are inclined to throw me down, "'you'll find some money and jewelry "'in the top drawer of the dresser. "'Rob me and sneak out during the night if you want to. "'Cut my throat if it's necessary.' "'You needn't be afraid, sir. "'You can trust me.' "'I do,' said Sidney Prale. "'Prale slept well that night.' When he awoke in the morning, Murk was dressed and sitting by the window. He drew Prale's bath without being told, and then stood around as if waiting to be of service. "'I—I found this slipped under your door, sir,' he said after a time. "'What is it, Murk?' "'A piece of paper with writing on it, sir.' "'More news from the enemy, I suppose.' WHAT DOES IT SAY? IT SAYS AS HOW A MAN'S SIN ALWAYS FINDS HIM OUT. THAT'S INTERESTING, ISN'T IT? DO YOU THINK I AM A SINNER OF SOME SORT, MURK? I DON'T CARE IF YOU ARE, SIR. MURK, YOU NEEDN'T GET EXCITED ABOUT IT. PUT THE PAPER IN THE LOWER DRAWER OF THE DRESSER. I'M MAKING A COLLECTION OF THEM, Prale SAID. He went back into the other room and continued dressing. "'Go to the telephone and order breakfast served to us here, Murk,' he directed. "'What shall I order, sir?' "'Order plenty of whatever you like and tell them to make it double,' said Prale. Murk grinned and gave a proper order. Prale was dressed by the time the breakfast was served. He and Murk made a hearty meal." And then Prale lighted his morning cigar and began reading the newspapers. Merck went around the suite, straightening things and trying to be of service. He looked at Sidney Prale often. It was plain to be seen that Prale was Murk's kind of man. There came a knock at the door. "'See who it is, Merck,' Sidney Prale said. He did not even look up from the paper he was reading. He supposed it was some hotel employee. Murk stalked across to the door and threw it open. Two men stood there. Murk flinched when he saw them. He did not know either of them, but he knew them immediately for what they were. Murk was a man of experience. Mr. Prale in, one of them asked. Yes, sir. Without asking permission, The two men stepped inside, and one of them closed the door. Prale dropped the newspaper and turned around to face them. "'Are you Sidney Prale?' one of them asked. "'I am.' "'You are under arrest, Mr. Prale.' "'I beg your pardon?' "'Under arrest,' I said. "'You know your rights, perhaps, so you need not talk unless you wish to do so.' YOU ARE OFFICERS?" THEY SHOWED THEIR SHIELDS. STRAIGHT FROM HEADQUARTERS, ONE OF THEM REPLIED. WE WANT TO TAKE A LOOK AROUND YOUR ROOM WHILE WE ARE HERE. SUPPOSE, SAID Sidney Prale, THAT YOU TELL ME FIRST WHY I AM UNDER ARREST? OF WHAT CRIME AM I ACCUSED? YOU ARE CHARGED WITH MURDER. MURDER? WHAT CRAZY JOKE IS THIS? Prale CRIED. And what particular person am I accused of murdering? You are charged with the murder of Mr. Rufus Shepley, the detective replied. End of chapter 6 Recording by Roger Milleen